why do we think that Jesus was born in a barn? And what actually happened? This is the Bible Reset Christmas special brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with uh, Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell, and we're excited to bring you this Christmas-themed episode. And specifically, we're excited to completely ruin the traditional nativity scene forever. Not really, though. Don't worry. Uh, we're actually going to uh, to go over the Christmas story with some extra layers of cultural context and uh, and show how really our Christmas tradition and our traditional. Uh, understanding of the story has shaped us, shaped it more than we realize. And uh, even though the Christmas story and the nativity scene, as we've known it for generations, have kind of a special place in our hearts, we really think that re-examining that passage with some extra cultural context will give it some added depth and some added meaning. This episode that we're going on today is actually based on the first chapter of Dr. Kenneth Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And we'll be looking at Luke's version of the Christmas story, of course, quite different from Matthew's and even from the theological reflections of John's gospel. Um, But Kenneth Bailey is a special guide for us, and we're very happy to introduce you to his work. Here's a guy who spent 60 years in the Middle East. He grew up in Egypt, um, then spent 40 years teaching New Testament, places like Jerusalem and Syria. Lebanon. And so uh, he knows kind of village life. And it's remarkable how this ancient way of life has just continued for centuries in these little villages that are kind of outside of the main cities. So he brings that knowledge to just enrich the gospel stories for us. And uh, we're really happy to explore this with you today. I remember I read in N.T. Wright's book, uh, Jesus and the Victory of God, that when he read Kenneth Bailey, he said it was like eyes to the blind. So uh, again, Bailey is a great source to understand the cultural context of the Gospels. Yeah, it would probably be a good idea to acknowledge that uh, the traditional understanding that each of us have about Christmas is probably an amalgamation of a number of things. It's uh, hopefully the text itself, but but Christmas carols and Christmas cards and Christmas pageants, all of those things have shaped uh, the pictures that we have in our mind. And, you know, to sum it up, I think, you know, we traditionally think of Mary and Joseph, Mary riding on the back of a donkey, coming into Bethlehem. She is in her third trimester of pregnancy. And, uh, you know, the timing couldn't be worse uh, as, as they arrive in the dead of night. She's she goes into uh, labor and then, you know, we read that there was no room in the end. We've seen pictures of Joseph knocking on doors, you know, comes back. No, no, no room here. Many sermons have been preached on that. Right. You know, will you let Jesus in uh, or will you leave him out, you know, in, in the cold? And then they, you know, frantically search for a place to have a baby and they find a barn where animals are kept. And uh, in more recent years, I think the idea has caught on that that Jesus' birth was even worse than that, that he mm-hmm. was not born in a barn, but maybe in a in a shepherd's cave somewhere exposed to the elements. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's pretty easy for us in modern day America to kind of make this leap, right? Kind of imaginatively, we can kind of visualize a young couple coming into a strange town and just being uh, turned away by cold hearted strangers again and again. Like it's, it's not a hard thing for us to imagine. But but Bailey in this first chapter of his bike of his book uh, argues that there are actual multiple realities of ancient Near Eastern life and culture that uh, that we overlook and specifically as it pertains to Bethlehem in particular. Yeah, it's interesting. Bethlehem, of course, it tells us in Luke's gospel is known as the city of David. Usually we think of that as being Jerusalem. I mean, you read in the First Testament. It's Jerusalem that is a city of David because he made it his capital when he became king. But Bethlehem held on to this idea that they were the birthplace. That's where David grew up. And so they kept the name for themselves as the city of David. Joseph, of course, is from the family of King David. So Bailey Hmm. makes the point, look, all he would have had to have done was introduce himself and give an account of his ancestors and doors in the village would have been open to him. There is no way that a descendant of King David is going to come to Bethlehem and not be welcomed into someone's home. They would be very happy to have him. So that's the first point, this connection with David and Bethlehem and Joseph's lineage going back to King David. Secondly, Bailey says there was and still is a strong culture of hospitality in rural villages like Bethlehem. Communities especially would have come together to help women about to give birth. Again, there's this strong cultural impulse in the Middle East. You just don't shut out somebody who comes to your village and who is looking for help. They would take honor in the fact that they were a hospitable place. So turning away a young woman in need and a descendant of David in the city of David would have been an enormously shameful thing for that village. And in the Middle East, of course, much of it is covered by a shame and honor culture system. And so they're always looking to bring honor to themselves, their family, their village. And so this idea that David and Mary were, I mean, Joseph and Mary were shut away and left to just fend for themselves immediately gets us off on the wrong track of what the story would have actually, um, how it would have played out. Yeah. So Glenn, I'm assuming right now, though, that some people that just listened to your segment there are saying to themselves, yeah, Glenn is trying to deconstruct the story. Because hmm. it says it right in the text, right? It says there was no room for them in the end. And it said it on the Christmas cards that I that I right. sent out this year year as well. In fact, uh I, you know, one fairly uh popular translation actually m- makes an even stronger statement. It says no lodging was available to them. Wow. At, yeah. at all. Direct. Hmm. Yeah. So interesting. But this this is where, you know, Bailey's insights and and actually Bailey's word studies uh, come into play. And he he uses two Greek terms for in and unpacks them that explains kind of the rationale. And, uh, you know, as a disclaimer, I, I'm not a Greek scholar. Um, the only Greek I know runs a little delicatessen around the corner from me, but I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to attempt these words, uh, but I, about, we, we don't want you to miss the point. And so he, uh, Bailey says there's two words in, uh, in the New Testament that are translated in. And uh, the, the word, the first word um, is the word podochian, 
And it's not describing an actual inn. It's not talking about like room 623 at the Holiday Inn. It's not talking about what we've seen on television, an inn where there would be rooms and and probably food and beverage was served there um, as well. Uh, that that is not the word that um, that that is used here. This is the word that was used, for example, later on. Luke, when he's talking about the Good Samaritan, he takes the man that's been beat up and he takes him to a Padochian or Padochian. He takes him to an inn, a place where there are our rooms. But the word that um, Luke uses here is is the Greek word katalima. And uh, it really was used to describe an upper room. This is the word that that is used when Jesus says to his disciples, go into the village ahead of you and find a place where we can where we can participate in a Passover meal. And so this is the word that's used here um, in this particular text. There was no room for them in this space, in this guest house space that we might see in a typical um, Bethlehem home. Let's just stop there for one second, Um, Paul. What you're really saying is, is that the strength of Christian tradition can sometimes even impact the way we translate the Bible, which is a, a remarkable thing to think about. So we have to be careful, even in our translation, we can be swayed by what Christian tradition is versus what the words actually meant when there are different words like this in the original New Testament. Yes, I think that's true. And, you know, in in some ways it can maybe even negatively influence our idea of of the cost of discipleship. Hmm. So I think many people have heard this story and the application from the pulpit is if you, you know, want to follow Jesus, expect to be put in dire situations, to be left out in the cold, to be able to face the elements and what have you. And Maybe that isn't quite what was being said here. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we've kind of gotten away from the uh, the idea of, you know, like the no vacancy sign at the Motel 6 or whatever. Like there's no available rooms at the commercial inn and more towards uh, there was no physical space available in a, in a guest room of a home. Um, so So how do we, you know, reconstruct that? And I think one of the things that Bailey talks about in his chapter that was super helpful for me is just what a a home looked like and kind of how a home was divided up in, uh, in that time. And he says, you know, even to this day, you know, he was writing towards the end of the 20th century or maybe even, uh, after 2000, I can't remember when this book was published. There's still homes that look like this. Like this is kind of a typical, um, you know, peasant home or a very kind of low class working class home. And, uh, and he gives some graphics of it and it, it really kind of looks like a shoebox. And if, if you're looking at it from the top, you can see that there's a, the larger room in kind of the middle of the home where all the cooking and eating and sleeping is done with the family that owns the home. And then uh, either added on to the side of the house or on top of the house, on top of the flat roof, um, there is this catalima, whatever this Greek word is that none of us know how to pronounce uh, mm-hmm. this, this guest space um, that is that is there for uh, for visitors and guests and that sort of thing. But then on the other end of the house is the stable where the animals are actually kept at night. We, we typically think of 
you know, maybe farms in the West or whatever, where the animals are in this kind of separate area, a stable or a, a barn, you know, away from the house. But, uh, but Bailey makes the point that a, uh, having the animals in the home, uh, prevents them from being stolen during the nighttime. And B, it actually helps warm the house up because you got some extra warm bodies in there. So I felt like that was just such a helpful image for me to actually know what a, a peasant home looks like. And then finally, kind of in the dugout in the space in between the family area and the stable are mangers. So so they can, you know, they dig these kind of elongated circles out of the floor in between the living space and the stable. And they put hay in there. And if the cow wakes up at 3 a.m. and is hungry, it's got some food there. Uh, he said the the alternative to that that some people also had was like a wood manger where you could take it down and set it in in the stable area. So that was just super helpful for me to kind of get an idea of the type of home that was available. And then, you know, all the pieces seem to add up to to support Bailey's claim that um, really the the better argument is there was no space in the guest room available. So, yeah, that's that's amazing, because for one, it reinforces the point about hospitality, right? I mean, there's already people in the guest room besides the family that owns the home in the big family room. So there wasn't room for them in the guest room like there normally would be. So they're actually staying with the family in the main room and using the manger that's at the one end of that room. And the animals are in the house as well, right in the next room. The stable is actually a room in the house. And so now we have Joseph and Mary and Jesus in a family home being taken care of and using the the architecture, if you will, the layout of the house. Um, and it's all explained to us in Luke's gospel, if we understand the words correctly and use the right word. So another thing I'm just thinking here, um, you know, I'm remembering that Bailey mentions it's, this is also remarkable. A story that throws people for a loop is the story of Jephthah in the book of Judges, where he's kind of the rejected son of this family and driven out of town. And then later they call him to be to be a, a general for them as the Ammonites are coming to attack. And so he makes a vow and he says, I'll do it. And if the Lord gives me victory, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house when I return home. Well, you used to think, well, how horrible, like somebody's going to walk out of that house and he's going to have to sacrifice them. And in fact, that's what happens. It's his daughter, which breaks his heart, of course. But what he expected to have happen was first thing in the morning, the animals would be coming out of the house because where they've spent the night. And so whatever animal first comes out the door, that's what he's saying he would offer to God in a sacrifice. So he's not the horrible person we always thought he was. He's just randomly saying, Whoever walks out the door, I'll sacrifice them. He's fully expecting it to be an animal, but his daughter happens to come out first. So again, clarity to the story when you understand cultural context. So I think kind of in summary, as we think of Jesus being born in a stable, uh, in a manger, um, is, is really, again, the idea that Jesus was born indoors, probably in a domicile where there were other people around. It's very possible that Mary did not give birth alone, that there was 
a midwife there or the mother of the home that was there um, to to assist her. Um, and so this is this again, I think is important. Uh, we have a sometimes the tendency to over dramatize things, and you know we certainly with the Christmas story have the tendency to over romanticize things. We uh, think of you know the hymn, you know, the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Um, <laughs> right, and you know. And later on in life, when he sweated, he didn't have B.O. And when he ate a Greek stew or a, a garlic stew, you know, his breath was minty fresh. Um, right, right. And so it is important that we we get a sense of what these stories really were like, because they influence how we think uh, of what it means to follow Christ mm. and what it means to be his disciple. Yeah, what's really at stake is the reality of the doctrine of the incarnation, that, that Jesus actually joined with us. And and here he joined with uh, a peasant family, right? Yeah, they have this royal lineage, but but the scene here is one of peasants welcoming other peasants, right? And and taking care of each other in community, and that's the community that Jesus was born into. So it, it gets he's right with us, and he's he has a normal human experience, and normal human ancient Middle Eastern things are happening. So it's it's the reality of the incarnation that's being kind of enriched here. Yeah. I think it's it's true to say that in many situations that we think of as one-dimensional, we, we do only think of one side of the coin. So think about Jesus' statement that many a sermon has been preached on that, you know, if you're going to follow me, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He has, you know, no, the the birds of the of the field have nests, and the you know the foxes have their holes. So the reality is is that Jesus did not have a permanent home; he was always moving around. But the rest of the story is is that um, provided for Jesus were some very wealthy women who became uh, supporters of his work and helped to finance, you know, what he did. And so, again, we have a, a tendency to either over-dramatize or sometimes over-romanticize these texts. Yeah. So, uh, so moving on, we, we have a baby, the child is born, <laughs> but the, the Christmas story is really only half over. Uh, you know, the first people to hear about the birth of the, the, of the Messiah are, uh, are the lowly shepherds of the field. And, you know, this is something that probably many a sermon has been preached on. Uh, but there are some extra things that ba that Bailey gets into here. Um, you know, it's it's commonly known generally that that shepherds were really at the bottom of the social ladder. They were poor. They were out in the fields. Um, I think Jewish tradition records that they were kind of consistently ceremonially unclean. And uh, and so this isn't exactly who you'd expect to be the first people to get the news about the the Messiah being born. And so, yeah, the, the shepherds then are not simply told that, that Jesus had been born, but they're invited to go in to visit him. And their immediate thought must have been that they'd be turned away if Jesus had been born as a king. Uh, but the angel tells them that Jesus would be lying in a manger, meaning that he would be in an ordinary peasant's home just like theirs, and they're put at ease. And uh, they make haste, as the King James Version puts it, 
to go see the Christ child. So I think it's worth mentioning here also that there's an echo of the King David story back in the First Testament, where David is the overlooked shepherd out in the fields who's not even being considered to be anointed as king along with his brothers. And so now in the, the birth of the son of David, we have shepherds being called in from the fields, just like David was, and they get to, they get to be there to see the newborn Messiah of Israel. And so there's this identification that goes as a theme, really, in the Bible, that God is working through the overlooked, the, um, the lower classes, the people who suffer, the lowly and humble, and that's who are at the center of this story, just like in the birth of King David himself. So now the shepherds come, and, and Luke says they were praising God for all that they had heard and seen when they leave the scene. So if they had found a family that was being just out on their own, they would not have been praising God for all they had seen and heard. So it seems clear, again, with the story of the shepherds, they're seeing a normal first century Palestinian situation, Jesus being cared for in a home, Mary and Joseph being sheltered with um, a community of people who are taking care of them. So they're praising God for everything that's happening and especially this astounding news that the King of Israel, the new Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, all these words we hear in the Christmas story, um, is happening in a lowly peasant home, um, cared for by other fellow peasants. And this is where the story is turning. And this is where the decisive action is happening. So um, the other thing Bailey mentions, which is really interesting, he said if they had found them alone and not being taken care of, the shepherds themselves would have said, come to our homes. Our women will take care of you. You shouldn't be out here alone in the stable or out in a, in a cave. So again and again, Bailey says, this is what it was like in the early setting of this story. And uh, it helps us understand what really happened. So when I first read this chapter in, in Bailey's book, obviously, you know, my, my mind was blown. My whole Christmas story conception uh, was blown apart because, you know, you, you drive around the neighborhood, you see the nativity scenes in the front yards, you go to the Christmas pageants, and uh, and all of that, uh, I felt like had just kind of been turned upside down. But um, but aside from it just being kind of a uh, intellectual curiosity, like, oh, huh, that's actually what happened rather than what I'm used to. What what I really found there to be a gift in this chapter was, was that there were... I guess some takeaways that really enrich the Christmas story when when viewed this way, as opposed to uh, what I'm used to. Yeah, I think this reframing that we've done, to your point, Alex, um, has some theological implications and implications in terms of how we understand God's love and care for his own. And I, I think sometimes the story is presented in a way that. Um, you know, from the very beginning, Jesus was, you know, rejected, that there was no room for for him in the end, et cetera. And uh, the reality is, is that it was not a, a comfortable situation. But, but maybe one of the takeaways from this story is that even in a situation where a very powerful dictator uh, somebody who goes beyond a king, he's Caesar Augustus, he's a god, and he pronounces uh, the edict that everyone will go. And, and even though it's very uh, untimely that Mary and Joseph have to go, 
I think the story actually seems to say that God was caring for his own, that he cared for Mary mm-hmm. and Joseph in, in this setting. And it certainly tells us the story, Glenn, to your earlier point, that God goes out of his way to make sure that we understand that in this new kingdom, this new way of God's humani- new humanity, that the poor and the outcast and the lonely are going to be a priority. And it's not like those are the only people God cares for, right? Later on in Matthew, um, he's the savior for all. There's the story of the wise men. He's the savior of the wealthy, and he's also the savior of the wise. But the order is important here. And had we been orchestrating this story, you know, we might have had the angels coming to Jerusalem. We would have had them, you know, make their big choir, uh, you know, performance at the temple. There would have been press releases. The story would have gone out. But uh, there's very, it's very clear by the order of this, that first and foremost, Jesus comes to a peasant village and the angels make their pronouncement to a peasant group of people and Jesus is born in, in lowly circumstances. Yeah, we've been talking about cultural context, but of course, we have to read within Luke's own context. And, it, and it's amazing to me to recall Mary's song, which, which happens just before this passage in Luke's gospel. And it's, a, it's actually playing out what Mary said would happen, that the lowly will be lifted up, the, mighty, the high and mighty, and, and of course, Luke mentions Caesar Augustus, the high and mighty will be brought down. And so this reversal, this great upending of the way things are in the world is already happening with this new baby born into the world. And Luke is really going out of his way to make sure we see that point. So I think another um, crucial takeaway, of course, is the commercial one. There's a whole new market for revised nativity scenes that we, <laughs> we should be seeing out yeah. there. So Any screenwriters listening or playwrights yeah, or anything? Jesus movies, right? Christmas yeah. cards. Everything's got to be redone, and there's a, there's a good market we had there. So some young entrepreneurs should get on that right away. Actually, I think the other uh, big takeaway is just how easy it is for all of us to have kind of cultural repetition and traditions kind of take over biblical stories. And it's so important for us to always know that we return to the text. The thing to do to check our traditions that that every tradition can have, that every culture can have, is to check it against the original. Bailey makes the really interesting point, which we didn't go into here too much, that this other Christmas story about you know Joseph and Mary being lost and on their own and out with the animals, no one's taking them in, that actually comes from a second century Christian novel that was a retelling of the Christmas story without the cultural knowledge of how that situation really went down. And it just got carried on and started influencing even things like translation. So I think there's a huge takeaway for us and all of us to say, you know, we know what we know, and we we think we know what we know, but always be open to new learning, to having the story enriched by, by a cultural understanding we didn't know, a historical setting. Those kind of things can only help our Bible reading. And they don't they might they might take away some of our traditions, but they don't hurt the Bible itself or the, the story of the Bible. In fact, they make it more accurate, better, and almost always a richer understanding of what God is doing. Again, oftentimes our our understanding of the Bible is that everything is set in stone, right? And that God's words are not to be changed, that they're final. And certainly 
we are not advocating for um, any any type of uh, unholy activity towards the text. But what, what is it that the reformers used to say, right? Always reforming. Yep. Always reforming. And so there's, there's room in the story uh, for us to, to always be exploring it. The, the story is a deep well. Yep. yep. And it's, it's not just an academic exercise for the, the Greek nerds, although they can, they can really help out with it. But it is part of, you know, just loving God with all our minds is constantly yeah. pursuing a deeper level of knowledge of, of what's actually happening in the text. So. Well, we we also at IFBR have our own good tidings, uh, hopefully of great joy for all of our listeners. And, uh, you know, when we decided to explore this chapter of Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey, we actually ended up contacting our friends at the publishers at, uh, at InterVarsity Press, and they have actually generously given all of our listeners a free download of the entire chapter. So there's some things in there that we didn't have time to fully get into. There's some illustrations of what the house looked like. Uh, just so you can kind of wrap your heads around the story a little bit better. So uh, a huge thank you to IVP for their generosity. You can go ahead and find the download link for that chapter uh, in our show notes. And really the the whole book is uh, a goldmine of just really interesting insights into the world of the Gospels and uh, and help reading help for reading them in cultural context, I guess. We also want to let you know that on Christmas Day, we're going to begin an email devotional series through the 12 days of Christmas. And uh, if you're already receiving our Advent devotional emails, you'll automatically get merged into the Christmas emails. But if you'd like to sign up for those, you can go to instituteforbiblereading.org slash Christmas. That's going to do it for us today and actually for all of 2020. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. We really appreciate your support for sharing this podcast with others. It's been a blast to start it this year and uh, we've really enjoyed hearing your feedback on it and, and hearing what you've learned from it. So hope you guys all have a blessed Christmas season and we'll see you in 2021. Thanks for listening.